Thank you for joining us for the Midweek Bible Study with Dr. David Wilson. Now let's join Dr. Wilson for a more in-depth study of the Word of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at the coming Antichrist, the lawless one, and talked about how bad the world's going to be. And you got to remember that when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, the second letter, they were already experiencing a lot of persecution and a lot of difficulty. And so he's really writing to them to encourage them and to tell them to remain unshakable, don't, don't waver. And you'll notice when we've, we left off at verse 12 in chapter 2, when we're talking about how the world is going to get worse and all of the deception and the antichrist and all of that. But then verse 13, the first word is but. But you. Here we go. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. In September of 1987, Henry Dempsey was at the controls of an eastern Express commuter airline flight. He and a co-pilot were actually relocating a Beach 99 turboprop from Portland, Maine to Boston. So there were no passengers on board. They were just taking the plane to another airport. And as they were climbing out after takeoff, Dempsey, the pilot, heard a banging noise from the back of the aircraft. So he gave the controls to the co-pilot and left his seat to investigate. And when he noticed, he noticed that the pull-down door did not seem to be completely closed. So he grabbed it to close it. At that moment, they hit some turbulence and the door flew open and Dempsey was sucked out. The terrified co-pilot looked back and saw the door open and the pilot had fallen out, he got on the radio, declared an emergency, and even requested the helicopter to search for Dempsey's body. But when the door flew open, Dempsey grabbed the sides, and he was hanging on for dear life. He was being hit by the airflow as the plane was flying at 200 miles an hour, but he refused to let go. Co-pilot landed at the nearest airport, not knowing that he's still dangling outside He successfully landed the airplane and Dempsey's head avoided the surface of the runway by less than 12 inches. The emergency crews were astonished to see Dempsey hanging on upside down on the open door. It took them several minutes to pry his fingers loose. 
guarantee you it would have taken. And, 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 the, and one rescuer said it took a grip of steel and nerves of iron to hang on with all the turbulence. But Dempsey refused to let go and it saved his life. Now we're not hanging on out of an airplane, but we're in the middle of a cultural storm, a spiritual war that's going on around us. And it seems like it's getting more and more turbulent. And so like Henry Dempsey, we need to hang on for dear life to some powerful truths in this passage. What keeps you going even when the midst of difficulty and persecution and discouragement? Well, Paul basically tells them two things. He says, first of all, you need to stand fast and then hold on to the word of God. Did you know holding on to God's word can keep you standing fast? It gives you stability. Sometimes when we're discouraged, we can feel like giving up or walking away. And we're not the first generation to feel that way. Now, all you folks with the hair color of mine remember Peanuts cartoons and they, play, they put some classics in the paper. That's the only reason I take Sunday papers for the comics. That's right up my speed right there. In one episode of Peanuts, of peanuts, Lucy and Linus are staring out the window at the pouring rain. And Lucy says, boy, look at it rain. What if, the flo- what if it floods the whole world? And Linus replies, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that it would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is that rainbow. And Lucy smiles and says, you've taken a great load off my mind. And Linus says, well, sound theology has a way of doing that. (laughs) Well, sound theology will help you stay in the fight, help you stay in the battle, to stand fast. How spiritually stable are you? Stability is sought after, it's a sought after quality. All of us want to have stability. Governments always trying to stabilize the economy. Builders want to construct stable houses and buildings and carpenters want to build stable furniture. Aircrafts and ships both have stabilizers on them to help in turbulence or, or um, ocean swells, and we admire people who, have to, who seem to have a stable personality and a stable character and convictions. They are rock solid. Well, the New Testament is much about that, about stability in the, the walk with Jesus. In Paul's first Thessalonian letter, he declared in chapter three, verse eight, he said, now we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. And here in his second letter, Back in chapter two, verse two, he said, don't be soon shaken, stay in there. And now he's about to issue this exhortation where he says, brethren, in verse 15, you need to stand fast. You know, we're not supposed to be like the reeds shaken in the wind as Jesus talked about. The first problem we run into is is persecution that can cause people to be unstable. The second is false teaching, and the third is temptation. Now, I already called your attention to the verse 13 where he starts with the word, but he's going to be switching from this bad news to the Thessalonians. He said, you guys know better 
You've been taught, you know Jesus, you're going to stand fast. Don't give up. No matter how bad things get the world towards, in the world towards Christians, we're expected to live differently. So for a few moments, let me talk to you about remaining unshakable, and I think we can find some good things right here. In the first two verses, we see the truth about standing on unchanging faith, the certainty of things. There's six truths right here in these two verses that you can put in your pocket. I like, I like it when you can put stuff in your pocket and take it with you, don't you? There's six truths that you can hold on to. It's solid ground. Don't ever forget this as a Christian. The first is that you are cherished by God. Look at verse 13. Beloved by the Lord. The most important truth that a believer can stand on when the world is ripping into them is that regardless of how you're being treated by the world, God never quits loving you. He never forgets you. Now, sometimes it's hard to remember that when the circumstances of the world get difficult. It's further complicated by the fact that you and I are both conscious of our own shortcomings. We're hard on ourselves, aren't we? We, we always know that we never quite live up to our own expectations, but yet Paul says you're beloved by the Lord. And you know why God loves you? It's not because of your qualities. And it's not because of your characteristics. In fact, God loves us in spite of ourselves. In spite of who we are, he chooses to love us even with our shortcomings. I found a little ditty. It's kind of funny, but listen to this. It says, isn't it odd that a being like God who sees the facade still loves the clod he made out of sod. Now, isn't that odd? (laughs) That's all we are. There's a bunch of clods that God's made, but he loves each of us. Just for an experiment before I came in here this evening, I just Googled these words, the love of God. There were 2.2 billion websites. The love of God, much of the love we experience from people is conditional. That's that's how we love, conditionally. If you do this, I'm going to love you back. Or if you love me, I'm going to love you. And if you obey me, I'll love you or whatever. But God's love is unconditional. He doesn't love you and me because we are exceptionally lovable. He loves you and me because he is loving. He, in other words, God doesn't love us for who we are. God loves us because of who he is. God is love. You remember when you were in the preschool department, it was one of the first things you learned. God is love. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31.3, said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued to extend faithful love to you. You may hear people who follow Islam and look in the Quran, and they will try to tell you, well, 
The God of the Bible and the God of Islam, Allah, is the same God, but it's not. And one of the reasons we know, because in the Quran, the love and approval of Allah is based on human performance. If you do these five pillars of Islam, then perhaps, maybe, there's no sense of assurance, but just maybe Allah will choose to allow you to enter paradise at death. But Allah hates the infidels and commands Muslims to oppose them to the death. But our God's not like that. Our God came searching for us. Our God came to rescue us. And he loves you. He knows you. Hang on to that truth. Put it in your pocket. Put it in your heart. Don't let go. The next thing is akin to it. We are chosen by God. In fact, it says that in verse 13, because God from the beginning chose you. It's an aorist at a point in time, middle voice means that we receive the action, but it means to take to oneself. I can imagine that the Thessalonians didn't feel like they'd been chosen by God when they were going through all kinds of persecution but they were, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, and be not afraid of them that kill the body but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. People often fail to realize that salvation that God speaks of, that we were chosen to be saved. God chose the world. He wants to save the whole world. There's a great truth in the Bible that we sometimes miss, but long before we chose to believe in Christ, God chose us first. Now, now listen, don't misunderstand me. He didn't just pick a few and leave some out. He chose the world. He chose us to be saved. And we have the opportunity to say no. But he still chose us before the foundation of the world. I I don't understand why God created us knowing what we were going to do. That's going to be one of those things in heaven I'm going to have to get reconciled when I'm a little smarter than I am now. Do y'all remember playing sandlot ball, ball, football, baseball? I can remember as a child how all the boys would gather on the playground after school. They'd pick teams to play football, touch football. The best two players were usually designated as the ones that picked. Sometimes they were the oldest, sometimes they were the best. And and as kids, we took this as seriously as the NFL draft. We were standing there thinking, when will I be chosen? Because that was a big deal. After all, if you were the, you know, the two best players were the captains. If you were the first chosen, that meant you were just a level under them. Some people weren't shy. Some of them may go, choose me, choose me, choose me. (laughs) The first ones chosen had a special status. Then they were chosen. They'd swagger over to stand behind their teammate. And as a group of the remaining boys got smaller, the anxiety level got up. It went up, pick me, pick me. Until finally at the end, the last couple of guys, they'd say, well, you can have him. We've all been there, haven't we? 
All those who were chosen last would hang their head and join the team, but their dreams of athletic greatness, they began to melt like ice cream on a summer day. They were a little disheartened, but I want to tell you something. God chose you first. You're not just the leftovers. Nobody said, okay, God, you can have him. We don't want him. He chose you before you were born. Ephesians 1, 4 says, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will. God chose you, but somehow he reconciles the fact that you have a choice to say no. I'm not one of those that believes that God chose you and you don't have any choice, but you're going to accept him and there's some people that God did not choose. I, I, don't, I don't buy that. And, and you know, you can't, you can't explain to me completely the Trinity. Well, I can't explain to you free will and predestination. But it's one of those infinite concepts. But all I know is that God chose you. And so you need to remember you were not just an afterthought. You were saved the issue of your will is involved when a person is saved. There's three factors involved. The word of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the will of the person. Because you can say no. I have friends that don't agree with me. But you and I are not robots. He chose you in love, but once he's chosen you to be on his team, you line up with him. The third thing is you're consecrated by the Spirit. Verse 13, he chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. The third truth is that our, transform our transformation is instantaneous as well as an ongoing process. You've heard me say before how when man sinned in the garden, he died immediately in his spirit. He died progressively in his soul, his mind, emotions, and will, and ultimately in his body. When you come to know Jesus, you're given life in the spirit immediately. And over a period of time, your mind and emotions and will began to be conformed to the image of his son, and one of these days, we'll get the new body to go with that. It's completely, completely, salvation is a reversal of that. And so you were consecrated in the spirit. When you accepted Christ, God put his spirit in you. you. It's the down payment, it's the guarantee, the earnest of your salvation. Philippians 1, 6 says, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We're set apart so, you are loved by God, you are chosen by God, you're consecrated by the Spirit, but look at what else you have. You have the belief in the truth, the conviction of the truth. You've been told the truth, and the truth has set you free. You see, they were trusting in truth, and truth is always going to be truth. 
No matter how unpopular and how difficult it is for people to accept it, and there's something that many in this world don't understand about the followers of Jesus. We follow Jesus because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so, every so often, life can get to a place where we realize that living life would be a little easier if we didn't have to practice all that truth, but we're just following a hunch, but the but you and I follow the truth. That's why you can see it. I mean, you, you know when people are lying to you on, the, on television. You, you see the news and you're going, that's not true. When sinners believe God's truth, God saves them. When they believe Satan's lie and reject the love of the truth, they can't be saved. Look back at verse 10. It says there's going to be deception among those who, per- who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. When sinners believe God's truth, God saves them. I read a statement I've said to I've told you before that people who hate the truth Look at truth as hate. So when we stand for the truth, we're always labeled as hateful. And all you do is tell the truth. We don't have to be mean to do it, but even just reading the truth to somebody, they take it as hate speech. When when people hate the truth, they look at truth as hate. You know it. Aren't you glad somebody showed you the truth? Aren't you glad that God revealed it to you and convinced you it's the truth? You and I know the truth. The world's not going to end by global warming. Well, technically it is. (laughs) But not in the sense that you and I think they think. Yeah, it's going to be burned up. It's going to be a lot hotter than they thought it was. But that's not how the world's going to end. Not before the people are gone off of it anyway. There's a fifth truth to stick in your pocket. You are called by God. Verse 14, to which he called you by our gospel. Our gospel refers to the message that, about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here he speaks of the actual work of bringing them to himself by calling them through the message of the gospel. The word call is, is an aorist verb, which means to call or invite. It looks back to the time when the missionaries visited Thessalonica and they said, we presented the gospel to you and the Lord called you to be saved. You, you, you remember when you gave your life to Christ? You remember when you were saved. You may not remember everything that you said or everything about it, but you do remember that there was this tug and this urgency and this want to to follow God, follow Jesus. Jesus even said no one can come to the Father except the Father bid him come. He called you. He reached out to you, called you to be saved. It was a personal call. It wasn't a telemarketer. It was a personal call. Holy Spirit, God reached down to you and said, 
I want you. I want to save you. Happened at a point in time when you remember. And the sixth thing is the confidence that you have of victory. In verse 14, it says, for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're gonna share in the, the triumph of the Lord forever. We're, we, we can fall into the trap that makes it look like we're, that we're in an unbelieving world and they're gonna win, but the fact is we know that they're not. We know that the Lord's going to win. We know that the glory of God is coming. And he's telling the Thessalonians, listen, it may look bad now, but one day, one day the Lord's coming and you have the confidence of that victory. Psalm 73 says, I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Behold, these are ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. And when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. It looks like everybody else is doing great. Sometimes you feel like, well, Lord, what about me? I'm your child and why am I struggling and why am I having a hard time? And, and the Lord said, the, the final tally's not here yet. You're gonna have the victory. For a believer, what begins with grace always leads to glory. There's quite a contrast for the future of those who are lost and our future. For those people who are lost, this world is as good as it ever will be for them. But did you know we already possess a glory in us? Not for ourselves, the glory of God in us. And it's gonna be further revealed one day when the Lord returns. We're not glorifying ourselves, don't misunderstood, but we have God's glory in us. He, he has saved us and Paul is reminding them that they're bound for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it, the scriptures declare plainly that before God gets through with us, every one of us will be perfectly glorious. One of these days we're gonna share in the glory of heaven, in the glory of God. And through eternity the church will be singled out as the example of what God's grace can do. We're gonna be the examples, we're the trophies. We are the, I guess you could say we're the trophies of grace. Look what God did for us. So to, you can stand on these six truths. Don't forget them. God loves you. You were chosen by God. You're called by God. You were saved, sanctified by the Spirit. You're consecrated by the Spirit. Those are, that's good stuff. And when you get discouraged, you need to come back to that and say, this is who I am in Jesus Christ. Now, to remain unshakable, we've got to keep living or striving with an unwavering focus. Our conduct in verse 15, therefore, brethren, because of these things in your life, therefore, two things. Notice two verbs. They're both in present tense, which means continuous action. You keep doing this. You don't just do it once. You keep on doing this from now on. And they're also imperative. Do y'all you know, know what an imperative is? You know the difference between a suggestion and an imperative? Did your mom and dad never tell you the difference? 
I definitely knew when my mom and dad gave me an imperative, a command. I also knew when they gave me a suggestion. They gave me very few suggestions. Most of them were imperatives. <laughs> this is an imperative. First, you stand firm. That's what he says. Stand fast. In this context where some had been shaken, if you go back to verse two, you can see that some have been shaken in their stand. And he says, not to be soon shaken in mind or trouble. It carries the idea of begin and continue to stand firm and hold on. The word stand firm, to stand, is used figuratively of, of staying in place. Do not, do not waver. For once, the good Baptist statement, we shall not be moved, <laughs> that fits right here. We shall not be moved off of this. <laughs> it's a call for believers to be stable because of the many winds of doctrine, false doctrine that always blow across the landscape. You know, it seems like some believers are jumpy and jittery and worried and uncertain. And if you watch too much television and especially the news, you're going to get jittery sooner or later. They are, there are perilous times, but you and I need to remember the truth and God's sovereignty and that we need to hold on to the truth written in the word of God. That's why Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, 10, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. And then he writes to put on the whole armor of God. And then he says that three times you can stand, having, it all, having done all to stand, stand firm then, stay in there, don't quit. Don't be wishy-washy. You ever heard that phrase, don't just stand there, do something? Well, you can turn that around here. Don't just do something, stand there. Stand firm because the Christian life doesn't start with action. It starts with conviction and belief. I stand on the truth. I stand on Jesus Christ. That truth always leads to action, but first I've got to believe the truth. Someone said, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. You and I know Jesus. We're not going to fall for anything. The second thing is, stay the course. Hold the traditions which you were taught. Now, the word hold on means to be strong and mighty and, and to, to prevail, it, it came from the, meat to, from the word that means to hold on to something strongly and tightly so that it cannot be lost or taken away. And of course, the focus is the traditions that we taught you. Now, that, that, the word traditions, we have traditions. All of us have traditions. You have traditions at Christmas. You do things with your family. There are traditions in church. Um, we hold to those, but this, the word traditions here literally means a handing down or a passing on, and it doesn't mean human customs. It refers to the tradition of teaching the truth that's been handed down to you. You stand on the truth that's been handed down to you, not, not the tradition of, well, I don't know, we always do it this way, that kind of thing. We have customs. But the tendency in our day is to always look for something new. 
Now, folks, I'm not opposed to trying some new methods from time to time, but the message has been given to us and we hold to it. We don't change this. And there's a lot of that going on today. I like what H.A. Ironside said. He said, what is new is not true. And what is true is not new. What he was talking about is the word of God. There's no new revelation from God. Now, you may learn some new things when you're reading through the Bible. And hopefully as you've been reading through the Bible this year, you've seen some things that you have never seen before. And you probably won't ever see again because you may never read it again. (laughs) So it's not, it's not, that's not what he's talking about. He said that, you know, when somebody tells you, well, I have a new word from God. No, what's new is not true. What's old is true here in the scripture. Doesn't change. There's no addition to it. The ground ever seems unsteady under your feet. Remember what you've learned. Come back to the truth. Sometimes when I get worried about something, I have to stop and I talk. I talk to myself sometimes. I don't let you hear me, but I talk to myself sometimes. I have to tell myself, what is the truth here? Lord, I don't, want to, I don't want to be deceived. I don't end up believing something that's not true. What is the truth? And then to remain unshakable, you've got to remember that you're sheltered by our unfailing Father. Here you're covered. Look at verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work, every good word and work. Now, here's some past, present, and future truth. First, the past, he has loved us. I've already mentioned that to you. He loved you before the foundation of the world. The present truth, everlasting comfort, consolation. That word consolation or comfort is the word parakletos, which is the word we get for the comforter, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. And it means consolation, encouragement. It's, this comfort is not simply for the future, but something that we know now. It's eternal. It reminds us that our present affliction is temporary. In fact, that's what 2 Corinthians tells us in chapter 4, that all of this stuff right now is just temporary. What's eternal is not seen. And whatever we may face in this life is going to pass That should become one of your favorite verses. And it came to pass. (laughs) That's it. Everything in this world is going to pass eventually. 
I like what Romans 15, 4 says, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, may, that we through the patience or perseverance and comfort of the scripture might have hope. We gain comfort from looking at God's word. When I know the truth and I know what's gonna happen, and I know, and see, I, and I read where it says God loves me, he still loves me, he hasn't left me. He's coming back. He gives me strength. I mean, you just find scripture after scripture after scripture that gives you comfort. It's interesting how some people who are on their deathbed or they're suffering, you can pick up the Bible and begin to read it to them and it brings them comfort. And then... The hope that we have or the prospect that we have, we use the word hope in a different way. I mean, when we use the word hope, we say, I hope I'm gonna pass this test. Or I hope the Dallas Cowboys win. Or I hope Texas Tech wins. But the Bible, the word hope means certainty. Somebody put it this way as an acrostic, H-O-P-E, having only positive expectations. Hope is an anchor Hebrews 6.18 says, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. And we've talked about the temple and the, and the curtain in front of the Holy of Holies separating us from the west, rest of the world and only the Jewish high priest could go in there once a year or you know, one day a year. But when Jesus was crucified, it was torn from top to bottom and it's his way of ushering us into the presence of God. We can come to him now. You know, in Bible times, an anchor for a ship was usually a big rock with a hole in the middle of it so they could tie a rope around it and through it. And anchors weren't just used to keep a boat from drifting. Sometimes a seafaring was not an exact, as seafaring was not an exact science, if they were coming into a small harbor, some of these ships were having a hard time, and so they would take the anchor and put it on a forerunner. It would be a smaller vessel, they would put, hoist that anchor onto it, and the, the smaller vessel would go into the harbor and find a place where that ship could, could dock, and they would drop the anchor and then tighten the rope and pull the ship into the harbor. Who pulls us into the very presence of God? Jesus Christ, he's our anchor. He is the anchor who gives us hope. During the early days of World War II, our nation was reeling from the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. It was a tough and scary time when people had to ration food and other items. But during that time, there was a pastor's wife who wrote, her name was Ruth K. Jones from Pennsylvania. She wrote a hymn that you and I are gonna remember. 
In times like these, you need a Savior. In times like these, you need an anchor. Be very sure. Be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. The chorus said, that this rock is Jesus. Yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. Be very sure. Be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. That's still true today, isn't it? In verse 17, it speaks of God's provision for us, our comfort and strength. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. He wanted God to encourage their hearts and strengthen them in their spiritual lives in every good thing they might say and do. Encouragement and strengthening or establishment are the two themes really in both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. To hang in there, to stay with them. And when Paul was with them, he encouraged them individually. If you look at verse 11 of chapter, uh, and back in 1st Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, it says, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. We need each other. We need each other to help stay in there too, don't we? One of the reasons we meet together to worship. Y'all remember when we couldn't meet together because of COVID, we knew we knew each other were out there, was out there, but you remember when you got to come back for the first time, how encouraging it was to see people. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake that, but, it, it, but gather together and exhort one another. Encourage one another. This Sunday, we're in the book of John, and I'm going to share with you that failure is not final. You ever failed? <laughs> I, know, I know the answer to that question. All of us have, but it's not final. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to watch more live streams or additional Bible studies, please go to southcrestlive.tv. We hope to see you again next week.